Last week, we were given a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ that I suggested should inform our view of Christ, that when we see a mental image of Jesus, that perhaps our views should be a bit more exalted. Yes, of course, at the incarnation when Jesus took on flesh, he, he looked like any other man, and true, his glory was veiled in human flesh. But there were those times when even the disciples who, well, became apostles and wrote most of the New Testament, those times they were given a glimpse that Jesus was something other. It all started at the very beginning. Luke chapter 5, when Peter, Andrew, James, and John had been fishing all night and caught nothing. After teaching the people from Peter's Boat, Jesus said to Peter, let's go into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. <laughs> Peter said, but, but we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Uh, okay, we'll do as you say. And when they let down their nets, they caught so many fish that the nets began to break. Peter had to call for his partners, James and John, to come and help. And then we read these words, but when Simon Peter, uh, Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all of his companions, also who were James and John. And, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, when you get a glimpse of Jesus, that's what happens. Now, these were professional fishermen. They knew what they had just experienced was miraculous, interesting. Even when veiled in human flesh, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet in fear. Why? Because he got a glimpse of who Jesus was, and he knew who he himself was, a sinful man. It was that... Time again when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and such a huge storm came that the waves were breaking over the boat and swamping it. I, just a little aside, I, I wonder who brought the storm, perhaps so that they could get a bigger picture of Jesus. Just thinking aloud here, is it possible that some storms in our lives are so great that we get a greater reliance upon and a greater picture of Jesus. You remember Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. I've often wondered if he was just kind of laying back there on the cushion, kind of with his eyes peeking open. Are they going to get it? They woke him up. Teacher, do you, do you not care that we are perishing? So Jesus got up and rebuked the wind in the sea and said to the sea, hush, be still, literally put a muzzle on it, and the wind died down and it became perfectly Calm, And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I don't know. That might be a good slogan for today, faith over fear. <laughs> At that point, we read the disciples became very much afraid. In fact, Mark says they feared a great fear, a mega fear, and, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In other words, they were more fearful of this man in the boat than the storm outside the boat. Do you see? They got a glimpse and they said, who is this? He ain't from around here. 
so many other stories. Let me just stay with that boat theme. Later, uh, Jesus sent the disciples after the feeding of the five thousand across the sea while he stayed behind to pray. Again, the disciples were caught in a huge storm, and they were rowing against the the, the winds and the waves, making little progress. You you remember this story. Jesus came walking to them in the middle of the sea, just like he was taking a midnight stroll. We read that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and cried out in fear. Stop right there. Have you ever thought that walking with Jesus would bring terror? Jesus said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they were utterly astonished. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Even in his humanity, the disciples were beginning to realize that Jesus was something other, and it scared them to death. Perhaps we should exalt our view of Christ. Talk briefly about this. This one last week, the transfiguration found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after Peter's confession of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, up in Caesarea Philippi, the disciples then began uh, a six-month journey to Jerusalem. On the way, Jesus tells them three times that when he gets there, he will be put to death. Yeah, along the way, Jesus took us that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain by, by themselves. You know the story. He was transfigured before them. The, the flesh veiling his glory was peeled back just a little bit. <laughs> and his face shone like the sun and his clothing became white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared and, and talked with Jesus. Scholars pre- assumed that, he was, that they were talking to him, encouraging him about what awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. And Open mouth, insert foot. Peter then said, hey, it's been great for us to be here. Let's pitch three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. A voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well. Please listen to him. Translated, shut up, Peter. Peter, James, and John fell down to the ground and were terrified. Terrified. There it is again. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up. And do not be afraid. Here's the point. Even in his humanity, the disciples began to realize that Jesus was something other, the very Son of God, and it terrified them over and over. They fell to their faces before him. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the women in the garden at the empty tomb, we read that they took hold of his feet, which means they fell on their faces and worshiped him. And he said, do not be afraid. When he appeared to the disciples, you know, the disciples weren't in the, at the garden tomb because they're scared to death back in the upper room behind locked doors. When Jesus appeared to them behind the locked doors, we read the words again, they were Terrified. I am suggesting that we should adjust our mental image of Jesus. Yes, he was human, but he was infinitely more. Then we looked at Revelation 1 last week. The, apo- the author, the apostle John, who was present in most of the stories I just told, except for at the Garden Tomb, had finished his introduction to this book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us while he was on the island of Patmos, remember we, early church writers tell us he was, he'd been exiled there before preaching Jesus. 
since I was in the Spirit, controlled by, filled with the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that Sunday, the first day of the week, when I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. A trumpet in Scripture announces something important. And I turned and saw Jesus, not in His humanity necessarily, but in His glorified, exalted state. I won't take the time to review the image because John will do so in chapters 2 and 3 when he writes to the seven churches. I will, however, remind us the vision is apocalyptic or image-driven. We're supposed to see it as a whole and be, listen to me, like John, overwhelmed with this picture of Jesus. Now think about this a moment. John, who had spent three years with Jesus as he walked on the earth, John, who had written the Gospel of John by this time in the three epistles of John. John, who had been a leader in the church for six decades now. We're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. John was both. John, the one who loved, uh, whom Jesus loved, who leaned back on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. John, who realizes who Jesus is when they were fishing yet again after the resurrection. John chapter 21, and Jesus appears to them and like deja vu, gives them another miraculous catch of fishes. Only the message in this miraculous catch of fishes is, is, what are you doing out there in the boat? I called you to do something else. John, who was called by Jesus, knew Jesus, was known by Jesus, loved Jesus, was loved by Jesus, wrote five books of the New Testament, who was perhaps more familiar with Jesus than just about anyone. This John, when he was given this grand vision of, of the exalted, glorified Christ, fell at his feet as though dead. I am suggesting that we might just be too familiar with flannel graph Jesus or movie Jesus, and we should adjust our mental image of Jesus and worship Him as the very Son of God with fearful respect and reverence. Just Friday, two days ago, I had written most of my sermon, decided to pop over the Gospel Coalition website, and they had just published on Friday an article by Michael Horton, one of my seminary professors, and the article was titled, Encountering God Should Make You Afraid. I, my uh, interest was piqued and read the article. He suggested that most sermons that you hear addressing a fear of God turns the word fear into respect or awe. And he writes that the Hebrew and Greek words for fear include uh, both of those concepts, uh, reverence and, and awe, respect and awe, but the words literally mean dread or a sort of panic, hence the word terror. It is indeed, a, he says, a disorienting awe, a fear-filled awe. The Greek word for fear is the word phobos, from which we get our word phobia, as in, he suggests, xenophobia, which is a fear of strangers. Horton says, a fear of God is a form of xenophobia because it is a fear, a phobia, a dread of the one who is utterly strange to us and altogether different. There is not anyone like God. To whom can you compare him? To whom will you liken him? Perhaps we're too familiar. Horton concludes, God is not your buddy an indulgent grandfather, a life coach, or a golf partner. 
He is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, demanding an account from each of us for our sins. First of all, against him, but also against our neighbors and the rest of the creation he has made. Indeed, encountering God should make you afraid. Listen, Jesus is not your co-pilot. If he is, change seats. Yes, of course it is true. As a result of the right conception of God and fear, when we fall at his feet in worship, he will reach out his hand and give words of comfort. Do not, do not be afraid. He said it over and over to his disciples, to those whom he loves. Hear him say it to you right now. I want you to have an accurate view of Christ, but also I want you to know incredibly that he loves you. Hold those glorious truths in tension, fear of God and love of God. And if we become imbalanced, we're in the wrong place. Fear of God, love of God. Now, having been given an exalted vision of Jesus, we hear the voice of Jesus. John is recommissioned. Perhaps now that he, that he is in a proper place to be commissioned, let that sink in for just a moment. Perhaps we need a proper vision of Christ to hear the voice of Christ. In a sense, Jesus tells John and us why we need not fear him as his Followers, read about it with me. Revelation 1, 17 to 20. Yes, we're going to complete chapter 1. Calm down. When I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven Churches, and the vision continues in chapters 2 and 3 where this exalted Christ addresses the seven churches, finishing each one with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what He says to us. You see, just as impressive as the vision of Christ is the voice of Christ, which makes some rather divine claims, uh, claims of deity. Last week, we called these verses the recommission of John. Let's break it down a little bit uh, more here. Here's the outline for, for this week. Jesus' self-description, Jesus' recommission of John, and Jesus' mystery revealed. Remember, a mystery in Scripture is something previously hidden but now has been revealed. And without God revealing it. There's no way we would have known it. There's no way, the, the gospel is called a mystery, there's no way that you would have figured it out apart from God revealing it. John had just fallen at the feet of Jesus like a dead man, meaning all energy had been drained from him. He, had, he fell at the feet of 
such a view of Christ, no power left, nothing within him could stand on his own. He, he lay there like a dead man. It's interesting to note, this is exactly the way Paul describes all of humanity, dead in trespasses and sins until touched by Jesus. Dead. Jesus placed his right hand on John. Now, don't miss that either. Because he just said Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. We're going to find out that's the, church, the churches. He holds the churches in his powerful hand. He walks among the churches. But notice he still here has time for the individual. Is there anybody here who needs to hear that today? He knows you. He has time for you. I... I, I I love this. People get all up in arms about that particular statement. Wait a minute, they say. Jesus had seven stars in his right hand. How did he touch John with a handful of stars? Oh, my stars, pun intended. Don't you think the God of the universe could figure out how to reach out and touch John with a star-filled hand? Maybe he squeezed. I don't know. He did it. We've seen Jesus touch John and said to him, do not be afraid. Again, people throughout Scripture do this as, and his consistent message to them, and I want you to hear it, his consistent message to you is this, do not be afraid. Do not, do not be afraid. And then he gives a self-description. We're talking even further about a picture of Jesus, only I want you to see this one as a self-portrait. This is what Jesus, this, this is how Jesus describes himself. He starts with, I am the first and the last. Now, it's hugely significant. That's very much like earlier in the chapter when God the Father said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the alphabet. We saw uh, the Greek alphabet. It said it didn't just include those two letters. It included everything in between, like we say from A to Z. It speaks here, Alpha and Omega, speaks of God's sovereignty over all things. He's in control of all all things. Further, it speaks of his eternality. Here Jesus, though, says, I am the first and the last, the first before all things, since I created all things, and the last of all things, that is the last, listen, to which all things point. That's who Jesus is. The first and the last. By the way, in chapter 22, Jesus will say himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Don't miss that he takes on himself the same title uh, and sovereignty as the Father. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Again, points to his being the source of all things and the end to which all things are headed. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess, you can reject Christ all you want, but there's coming a day. Further, we read in Isaiah 44, this is incredible. Isaiah 44, 6, it says this actually several times in 44 to 48. God says, thus says the Lord, capital letters, that means Yahweh, the, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty that is. Seems we're supposed to know who is speaking here. This is God speaking, Yahweh speaking, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Do you see? 
Jesus took that title upon himself. And God, first God says that I am before all so-called gods. There are no gods beside me, and I will be the only true God left standing. I know there are lots of pagan gods out there, but when it's all said and done, there will be one left. Besides me, there is no other. And then again, Jesus takes this description upon himself. Does that mean we should perhaps bow before him? He goes on in verse 18, and the living one, stop right there, and the living one. That too is significant. It is used all over the Bible to refer to God in Joshua chapter 3 and Psalm 42 and Psalm 84, many other places in this book of Revelation. The Father is called the living God who lives forever and ever. Again, Jesus has no qualms taking that title upon himself. He, he, he once said in John chapter 5, the Father has life in himself and has given the same to me. I have life in myself. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see? This is significant for him to say, I am the living one, unlike these pagan gods. Reference throughout Scripture of God being the living one is in juxtaposition to those pagan idols and lifeless gods who have no life and no power. We are studying the book of 1 Samuel in our men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings at 6.30 if you want a good Bible study. We recently... For Samuel 4 and 5, talked about how the Philistines, I call them the Cleons of the Old Testament, Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. Now, they put the Ark, now remember, the Ark is a golden box which symbolized the presence of the living God of the Israelites. Make no mistake about it, the Ark was not God. That's important. The Ark was not God. It was kept in the Holy of Holies with a lid on top called the mercy seat in the box. Among other things, there was the Ten Commandments. So once a year, we just sang about it, the high priest would, would, would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on it as a sacrifice for the, because those tablets of stone underneath in the box had been broken in God's presence and the Shekinah glory was above, mercy seat in between. He would sprinkle the blood as a shield, if you will, between the holy God and the law that was broken. But of course, we know that the blood of bull and goats will never take away sin, not forever. God's presence was symbolized by the presence of the glory cloud. Philistines capture the ark. They put it in the temple of their God. His name was Dagon. The next morning, their carved stone or wooden idol, Dagon was face down before the ark. Don't miss it. Even lifeless pagan carved gods had enough sense to bow in the presence of God. At least that which symbolized God. Philistines found their God that way and said, oh, there, our God has fallen over. Let's pick him back up. The next day, his head and his hands were cut off and laying on the threshold at the entrance to the temple, to their temple. God, the true and the living God, then struck the Philistines with tumors. As we said it, we found that that's probably hemorrhoids. So they returned uh, the, the ark, you would too, uh, to the Israelites. Uh, by, by the way, uh, since the head and hands of Dagon were on the threshold of the, of the door, the priests of Dagon no longer stepped on the threshold on their way into the temple. Think about that. Will you think about that? 
The living God had just demonstrated his superiority over this false, pagan, lifeless, stone-carved or wood-carved God, and their response, well, let's not step on the entrance to the doorway again. Brilliant! Morons. I say that word every once in a while, particularly when I'm driving. It's not a nice word. Does not our culture, our world, do the same thing? They worship everything that is not God, everything except the true and the living God, to whom one day they will give an account. He's the living one. The rest are pagan fakes. Further notice, he was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. This, of course, is referring to Jesus' death and resurrection, and we get the first clear indication that this image is Jesus. If you did not read verses 17 to 20, you could have read verses 9 uh, 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 to 16, and you would know that it was a divine character because of the allusions to the Old Testament. You would not have known who it was till now. Clearly divine with its Old Testament allusions, especially Daniel 7. He was dead. Literally, it reads, I came to be dead. I became in the state of being dead, of death. Not mostly dead, fully dead, experiencing the consequences of sin, not his own, but ours. He, the just, died for the unjust that he might bring us to his Father. May we never listen. May we never, don't tune out. May we never grow tired of this truth. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that through faith in him, the fact that he was in fact dead because of our sins, but is now in fact alive forevermore through faith in the gospel, we can be saved. Remember the words of Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That is what John, and this is what Jesus is telling us, he is Lord. He is God. Listen, warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus? You think that he's a good teacher, that he was a great man, that he founded a world religion? That will not save you. He's Lord. He's God. Confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It was dead. Buried for three days. Again, not swooned, not passed out from loss of blood, not body stolen, not hidden elsewhere, not wrong tomb. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, which means death no longer has dominion or power or authority over him. Romans chapter 6 says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death, is, uh, death no longer is master over him. He defeated it. He willingly laid down his life and took it up again. This is the gospel. He was dead, according to the Scripture, buried and raised again the third day, according to the Scripture. He was seen by many witnesses. This is interesting. Think about it. He was seen by many witnesses to include John in the upper room, but he is alive forevermore. So now John sees him in this glorified state 60 years later because he is alive forevermore. And you say, boy, I sure wish I could see him. You will. There's coming a day that, that you, you will. In the meantime, <laughs> Jesus said in John chapter 20, talking about Thomas, um, blessed are those who have not yet seen, uh, who have not seen yet believe. You're blessed. You're going to see him. 
So he was alive, then dead, and now is alive forevermore because next he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. Hades, Old Testament, Sheol, not Gehenna, that's a place of suffering. Sheol, Hades, was a place or abode of the dead. Many times uh, those words, death and Hades, are used interchangeably in the Scripture, but here, since both appear together, one likely refers to the state of death and the other the place of death. To have the keys of death and Hades expresses ownership, authority, mastery. He is the owner. He owns death and Hades. He is sovereign over death, all death, to include his own, by the way. I lay down my life and I take it up again. He is sovereign. He is master over the place of the abode of death. Later in Revelation 20, we will find death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire because death has been conquered by the death and resurrection of Christ. And we sing, uh, for example, of the death of death. You understand what you're saying when you say those words, the death of death? It will be no more because Christ conquered it. Last enemy to be destroyed. And since he has the keys, listen very carefully, he is the one who determines death, who dies, and when you die. So stop fearing it. Your Jesus has the keys. He determines your place of death, and he has the authority to, de- to deliver you from death. Coming a day when all those who are in the tomb will hear his voice. And they will come forth. He's the, he's the master over death. By the way, this is the only place that speaks of the keys of death and Hades. And in the early church, it was taught that, in his, that at his death, Jesus descended, went to hell, waged some kind of underworld battle, and took the keys, snatched the keys from Satan. We, we see that somewhat in the Apostles' Creed when we say he descended into hell. I don't have time this morning to debunk all of that. The idea is largely no longer held. There is no indication in Scripture that Satan had the keys of death ever, nor that Jesus descended into hell, nor that he snatched the keys from, from, uh, uh, of death from Satan. Satan is not nor never has been equal to God. Do you, you hear what I just said? He is not, never has been, never will be equal to God. Satan is God Satan. Yes, Hebrews 2 says Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, which simply means the satanic temptations of sin which come our way no longer have power because of the work of Christ. Jesus is simply saying by his death and resurrection, he was given authority over the state of death and the place of death. Your Jesus has control over your death. When you die and he'll raise you up. He has the keys. Therefore, Jesus, point two, almost done. Jesus recommissions John. Verse 19. It's an interesting verse with lots of interpretations. Clearly, having touched and raised John, Jesus tells him to again to write. Before in verse 11, Jesus um, told John to, to write to the seven churches. Now he expands on that command just a bit. Write the things which you have seen, presumably talking about this vision of Christ, the things which are presumably the condition of the churches uh, that Jesus 
will address in, in chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place um, after these things, presumably chapter 4 or chapter 6 to 22. This is the way many see this verse as sort of an outline of the rest of the book, uh, perhaps even the rest of time. That is, he says, right of the exalted Christ who is reigning uh, right now, right of the church age represented by these churches, and right of the end of all things, the eschaton, the end of the age when we will then enter into the eternal state. I think, actually, that's rather reasonable reasonable. It's not without its challenge. Uh, For example, in chapter 12, uh, which we seem to refer back to the fall of Satan and the birth of Christ or the nation of Israel. Figure that out when we get there. Regardless, here's the point. Jesus tells John to write what he sees from then through the end of time, whatever your eschatological position. I personally think that from chapter 6 to the end are the end of time, my position. Which brings us to our last point. Yes, I'm almost done. I figure that I've taken lots of withdrawals lately, withdrawals of time, preaching extra long, so I better make a deposit or I will be quickly overdrawn. But in verse 20, Jesus tells us the mystery. Remember, a mystery is that which was formerly unknown, but now has been made known usually by divine revelation. The mystery of the seven lampstands and the seven stars in his right hand. Before we look at those, an important point here is how to interpret the book of Revelation. These images represent something. This is the key as to how to interpret the rest of the images. We are not to be looking for actual images. We should be looking for what those images represent. That's important. Here we are told the seven golden lampstands represented the seven churches. I'm suggesting, as others do, that that means it is the church's responsibility to be the light of the world. Yes, Jesus is the light of the world. He said that, I think, in John chapter 8. But we represent him to the world, which is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. You are, interestingly, the salt of the earth. Light represents truth. Salt represents being a moral preserving agent. Now, we normally think of salt being a, a, um, a, you know, a spice makes something tasty. I guess it could be said that Christians should be tasty. You might need to hear that. Um, But that's not really what he's talking about there, a moral preserving agent. We are to represent the light of the gospel to the world. We don't hide it under a bushel, and we are to be the salt of the earth, which means we are here to preserve the moral order. Every once in a while, especially if you take a biblical moral position that happens to be political, people will say to you, it's none of your business. It is your business. You're the salt of the earth. Be salt. If you're not, it's worthless of no value but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, Jesus said. Can you imagine what this planet would be like? We are in a total mess. Can you imagine what it would be like without the church of Jesus Christ? Be salt. That was just a little aside, no extra charge. In the midst of all of that, we face, we will face stiff opposition. Notice, however, Jesus walks among the lampstands, meaning Jesus is present with his churches in the midst of suffering and opposition. You be light, you be salt, you'll be opposed. Jesus is here. We remember he said, go make disciples of all nations. I'm with you to the end of the age. Yes, readers of Revelation, 
seven churches and this church. You may be opposed, but Jesus is with us. He has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us for a moment of time. We are His. Further, the seven stars that Jesus holds in His right hands are the seven angels of the seven churches. This is a little challenging. Lots of discussion about it. I remember hearing in my Bible college class on Revelation that the angels are the pastors or, or leaders of the local church. This is even still held by some. Others suggest, interestingly, I think probably rightly, that it speaks of the spirit of the church. That is, these letters are written to the churches to address the spiritual condition of the church. But the word angel is used throughout the book of Revelation like some 67 or 68 times, oddly enough, to refer to angels. Some then suggest churches have guardian angels, no real support for that. I think basically what we are left with, heavenly messengers, an angel of the church, which is addressed as representative of the church, and the letters then address the spirit or spiritual condition of the church. There are somehow angels of churches who represent the churches. They're not in a priestly way. They just represent the churches or the, at least the spirit of the church. You figure it out, which means finally, I'm done. Next time, we will get to the first message, the first message of our exalted Lord Jesus to the church in Ephesus and to us. Because he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we want to be a church who has ears to hear. I am reminded of Isaiah 6 when you commissioned Isaiah to go and to preach, and they would not hear. They would not listen to him. Now you tell John, similarly, write these things to the seven churches, which I think represent the churches throughout all time and place, and finishes each one with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us be a church that hears. Help us not stop up our ears. Indeed, the beginning of chapter 1 told us, Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and heeds it, keeps it. May we be that kind of church as we jump into Ephesus. And seven churches ending with Laodicea. Ephesus and Laodicea are, are like the worst. <laughs> May we hear what you say to this church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.